in a world ravaged by war and chaos. A group of survivors must band together to brave the dangers of a post-apocalyptic landscape. The year is 2000, and the world has been plunged into darkness. The nuclear fires have burned out, leaving behind a wasteland of ruins and radiation. But amidst the rubble and despair, a glimmer of hope still remains. Join Dork Day Afternoon as they face off against marauding gangs, enemy soldiers, and even the harsh elements themselves in the world of Twilight 2000. Will our heroes survive the challenges ahead? Can they keep their own humanity intact? Or will they succumb to the harsh realities of life after the end of the world? Two Past Midnight, an actual play podcast by Dork Day Afternoon. Jason from Hawaii. Welcome to a special edition of the Comics for Fun and Profit podcast. In this episode, I will be interviewing writer Jason McNamara. He is here to promote his latest work, Past Tense. It is an original graphic novel from Dark Horse Comics coming out on June 21st. Jason, welcome to the Comics for Fun and Profit podcast. How are you doing today? (laughs) I am a pure delight from head to toe. Thank you for having me, Jason. No, thank you very much for coming on the show, and thank you for um, thank you for giving me an opportunity to interview you. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you for your time. Your time is just as valuable as mine. No, thank you. Thank you very much, listeners. I'm just going to go over some of Jason's works. He has worked on numerous graphic novels and um and at least a couple of video games here and there. Mm-hmm. First one I'm gonna uh, first work he done was the um. Is called the cicada. Is that correct? Cicada. Cicada. Yeah. Okay. It's a it's a bug. It shows yes. up every thirteen years as an insect. They're super loud and annoying. That wasn't my first work though. Uh, we did that a few years ago. I did that with Alberto, uh, who I worked with on past tense. Ah, okay, all right. And then you've also done. Um, you've also written Ghost Band, the Rattler for Image Comics, mm-hmm. the Martian Confederacy series. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, and then also to correct me if I'm wrong, your first work was Less Than Hero. That was back in 2003, 2004. That's correct. Yeah, that was a miniseries. I, I self-published. Uh, okay, and then this is the 20. This year's the tw- marks the 20th anniversary. Sure Here. does. 20 years of comics. Wow, that's great. <laughs> and then I'm just going to mention one video game that you work on. You join in, just say game rattle off other video games that you worked on. You worked on a video game called Extinction in 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, you were the lead writer, and that came out through Maximum Games. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. And I've consulted on a few other games for Maximum Games. Ah, okay. Um, but it's been, then, a, it's been a few years. And then since 2019, he is an adjunct professor at the, at the Pacific Northwest College of Art where he teaches introduction and advanced script writing for comics and video games. That's right. Jason, That's good. do you want to add anything else or do you want to spotlight any of your past works that our listeners should really check out? I also have a recent series called Sucker that I do with my friends Tony Talbert um, and John Hebink and Peter Sakash. So we do that through Kickstarter. Um, oh, okay. I, I did some earlier books that were all self-published and I learned a lot by doing it myself. And I think... Doing things the wrong way teaches you how to do them the right way later. Mm-hmm. So, yes. We talked. You talked about Lesson Hero, which came out twenty years ago. 
that thing was riddled with typos. I was so confident in my storytelling ability that I sent it to the printer and Diamond, you know, they, to their credit, they did distribute it, but I didn't learn how to, I didn't learn possessive pronouns till I was about 30. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, I, I grew up in public. I grew up very publicly in comics. And then, correct me if, um, actually, um, I'll hold off the question till we get to um, where can people follow you and promote your website. Um, I also want to thank you for an advanced copy of Past Tense. It's a very good story, and listeners, we will get that to, we'll get into that shortly. You didn't now, upload it to any torrent sites, did you? No. <laughs> oh. All right. Now, where can listeners follow you on social media? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Jason McNamara. On Instagram, I'm Ramonesome because I'm a big Ramones fan. And you can find me on my website, jason-mcnamara.com. And then for your website, this is where people can pick up some of your past works. Is that correct from your this, website yeah. store? I have a store uh, with some low quantity copies, some Kickstarter exclusives, some prints, some stickers, all the good stuff. That's pretty cool. Uh, all right. I love sending people things in the mail. I love thinking about how they're going to open the box and what's inside. I'm a big fan of like bright rags. We'll do these like specialty Halloween t-shirts or uh -huh. escape from New York packages where you get like an eye patch and a print. And I just love the idea of opening up a, a box and getting this sort of euphoric feeling, this rush. So I love packaging things up for people, putting little extras in there and just imagining how they open it. Ah, that's so cool. Yeah. It's it's a, it's a, it's more it's better than like clicking something off of Amazon with this throw it on your doorstep you know I like yes. having that that hand touch uh, and that one to one exchange with people. So listeners, if you guys get a chance, please check out Jason's website store. Um, Jason, honestly, I because I'm because I'm looking at probably picking. I think I don't know if you have it. The probably you, the Rattler graphic novel on your the store. Rattler graphic novel is sold out. I think wow. I have. I might have one banged up copy on my shelf. Mm -hmm. uh, that was her image. It was a beautiful book and it's just gone. You might okay. be able to find one. Uh, I can send you a PDF if you want to read it. But no, we will. Greg and I are looking for a publishing opportunity for that book. Oh, okay. All so right. it, it may be back in print uh, by next year. Oh, okay. All right. No, I'll be honest with you, Jason. I, I, rather, I rather buy it. Make sure you get some of the money from it. If oh, it's I'm back a, to your website, I'm do, Jason, I'm a dozenaire. I have dozens of dollars. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm set for days. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I want to give you an extra dollar, so at least you have $13. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to take my wife to the dollar store, and I'm going to say, honey, buy any three items you want on me. Because I'm a successful comic book writer. <laughs> oh, my God, listeners, we're going to have a great time this interview. We are. <laughs> All right. Jason, I'm going to ask, what was your first comic, manga, Sunday comics, or, and I'm also going to throw this into any science fiction or crime novels that you read, you know, your first, oh. you know, your first ones, or. Okay, so I thought about this. My first, my first memory, one of my very first memories yeah. as, a, as a toddler is a Marvel Tales reprint of Amazing Spider-Man 112, and it's got this great image of Spider-Man, like, this giant image of him just waving his hands in disgust as like this, these, these gangs fight below him. Yes. So my father was a young father and he would take me to, he took me everywhere with him. But we'd always go to the butcher shop and he would buy Conan magazines and 
you know, leg show and underage grannies, whatever he was reading. Yes. Uh, and then we'd always go to the spinning rack and I would get Batman and Spider-Man. And in the late seventies, there was that Spider-Man TV show on TV. Yes. Where it had like the one web shooter because the other one yes. broke. The Hulk was on TV. Oh, yes. Uh, the Batman 66 reruns were on TV a lot. Uh-huh. And some of those cruder Marvel um, cartoons were still playing. Yes. So my father just always read those to me. He taught me how to read with those. And he just really involved me in that sort of mindset. So I remember coming home. I, I was on his shoulders. I was just a little tyke on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. And he would say, Jason, don't turn around. Two-Face is following us. And I'd go, oh, no. Two-Face is the worst. And then we, he would take off running because Two-Face was going to get us. And like my heart's beating out of my chest because Two-Face, you know, he's scary. That guy. Yeah. You never know what he's going to do. But also, it was fun to be chased by Two-Face. So uh, those are my earliest memories of uh, just being a child. So Marvel, Marvel and DC, but more Marvel, oh, yeah. has just always been a part of my life. Just always. Mm-hmm. Um, and my relationship with it changes as I get older and, you know, you pop in at different times. But now that I see all these film adaptions, now that Marvel is ubiquitous with entertainment, I just think, you know, a lot of comic book people can turn their nose at this or say they're bringing in all these other fans. But like my first interaction with Marvel was that Spider-Man TV show in 78. Like whatever gets you into comics and whatever gets you into the comic book culture, like Mm -hmm. we are spoiled. We're living in a golden age where the things that we love are now being celebrated. Yes. You know, and when I was a kid, like what did I would rent that Dolph London Punisher movie? Oh yeah, uh, you know that's all I that's all we had in 1988. You oh, know? Yes, I rem- yes, I remember that. Yes, and now now there's so many adaptions I can't even keep up. If you had told me as a kid that there's a Morbius movie and I've never seen it, I still haven't seen it. Yeah, you know that there's so many comic book adaptions you can't even watch them all now. Oh yes. Yeah. Like, otherwise, I would just be on a comic book diet, and I don't think as a comic book writer you should exclusively live in the comic book. Mm-hmm. I think you should have a wide swath of interest because you can't just read comic books and make more comic books. That's a snake eating its own tail. Mm-hmm. And I've read those books and I could tell who's been raised on just comic books. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And then I'm going to ask um, um, like novels and stuff. Like, do you remember any great science fiction novels that you read? I remember. So my parents, again, like would give me what they read. So I remember reading yeah. Stephen King really young. Um, I, I do remember Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Detectives was a book series. Oh, okay. That I liked quite a bit when I was a kid. Anything that was like a horror anthology, mm-hmm. I remember reading Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Uh, I had a book. I mean, I was probably in elementary school, and this was a book about like, urban legends, like yes. the vanishing. It was called The Vanishing Hitchhiker. And it was all about these urban legends, like the hook and the car handle and Lover's yes. Lane. Um, but also, as a, in elementary school, I was reading Anne Rule books. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's a nonfiction writer, and yeah, she writes about awesome. crime killers, like the I-5 killer. Yeah. So even though I'm, like, in sixth grade, I'm reading about, like, you know, what happens to a body when you drag it down the stairs and all the uh-huh. carpet, <laughs> like, the, the flesh it leaves on each step. Yeah. Which is probably inappropriate, but I love reading. Yeah. I was always exposed to that. In fact, I remember the very first fight I got into and I was in elementary school, and the Outsiders movie had come out. Oh, yeah. I had seen the Outsiders movie, and I thought, well, I want to read the book now. Yes. So uh, we were all little kids, and I'm waiting for, I'm in line to get on my bus, and this kid said, oh, look at you reading the book. Your, your mommy won't let you watch the movie. And I remember, like, being like, you don't understand. The book has got more to it. 
Yeah. And he was like, ah, oh, he won't. And I remember punching him in the face. <laughs> I remember like getting in trouble. And I remember like the blood coming out. He was a little redheaded kid named Ryan. I punched him in the face. And then, you know, the teachers break us up. And I got to go pick up my copy of The Outsiders off the sidewalk. And that was the first fight I got into. Some kid picked on me for reading. I don't know where you are today, Ryan, but I'll still do a rematch. <laughs> I don't know where you are. <laughs> Come get me, Ryan. <laughs> the books are always better, creep. Yes, it they are. <laughs> um, and when did you decide you wanted to be a writer? Jason, I don't even know if I still, I, I don't know that, that ever I ever had a choice. Okay. Uh, I, I love to read and I love to write. And I don't know that it, it took a long time for me to put those two together <laughs> as mm -hmm. like, you should be a writer. But I would fill notebooks up with observations, song lyrics, poetry, little short stories, little fan fiction. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote like a little novella when I was in probably high school. And I just thought, this is great. And I gave it to some friends and they were like, you know, this is suspiciously like Albert Camus' The Stranger. Mm -hmm. uh, so early on, you're really aping your influences until you find your own legs, until yes. you're on your own two feet. So I understand why people start with fan fiction. I don't knock fan fiction at all. Um, it teaches you how to write, and then you get that out of the way, and you can do your own stuff. Uh -huh. uh, my first comic book series, Less Than Hero, was very, very much in the vein of like Silver Age superheroes with the Steve Ditko look, but with modern, scuzzy aesthetics like the superhero smokes meth. Uh -huh. to find his powers and we thought that was edgy and at the time you know it was it was the best we could do at the time and we were aping our influences because we loved that kind of comic and once we got that out of our way we were uh -huh. like oh now let's tell our own kind of stories yes that's more unique to us so before i ask you the next question because like you said your first comic book was less than hero so mm -hmm. what so the title is it a riff from the 1980s movie less than zero and that was also based on a book too yeah, it was. Yeah, it was absolutely a rip on that. Um, what was his name? He wrote American Psycho as well. His name is it Brett Easton Ellis. I think is his name. I don't. Yeah, um, okay. I didn't read the book. I was familiar oh. with the movie, and yeah, it was a rip on that. I just thought it was a pun. And then shortly after we did that, there was a band called Lesson Hero. All of a sudden, Lesson Heroes everywhere. And actually, it was really funny that Will Smith movie Hancock at yes. one point was going to be called Lesson Hero. And we we contacted our entertainment lawyer when I when I read that. I was like, hey, they're making a movie called Lesson Hero about a superhero, but it's not our book. Yeah. And he said, you know what he said? Let them make it and then we'll sue them later. <laughs> and at some point they must have Googled the title and changed it. Uh, because I was I was like, oh, I'm gonna get some of that Will Smith money. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> never happened. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Until I never saw Hancock because I was mad. Yeah. I was mad that I saw my title, and then I was mad that I gave it away. Yeah. Darn that researcher, that 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 apprentice researcher kid, you know. <laughs> right. There was also um, I think a top shelf book came out almost the same time called Less Than Heroes. Oh. It made a plural. And I was like, it was just in the ether. Yeah. So all right. And then how did you feel seeing your name for the first time? Um on your first published comic, Less Than Hero. How did you uh, Well, it's a mix, right? You're like, I did this. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think the trap with comic books or seeing your name on anything is it inflates your ego, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yes, my name was on that book. 
it's also riddled with typos mm -hmm. that are wholly mine. So on some hand, one hand, I'm like deeply proud of the work and that we're saying something unique about San Francisco in that time period. Um, and also I think it was like the collaboration between Tony and I, we were like this little garage band. Mm -hmm. Like we were against the world. So we were hand selling that thing in bars. Mm -hmm. One of the very first copies I sold was over a urinal at the, this bar called the Eagle. It's a gay mm -hmm. bar in San Francisco. I got my backpack on. I'm going to the bathroom. The other guy's going to the bathroom. And he's like, hey, how do you do that comic book? You got any? And I was like, oh, well, yeah. Let me just wash my hands and I'll hand sell yeah. you a copy while you're urinating. Yeah. I had no pride. I'm like, hey, I'll sell a copy to anybody. Yeah. Uh, so we would do sell it in bars. I would host art shows and have different kind of artists. And I always made sure that we were the only comic book in the room. And we were always always the cheapest thing in the room. Mm -hmm. So if you can't afford like a $1,000 painting, maybe you would enjoy this $3 comic book. Yeah. Um, so I love that it really made Tony and I a team and it really just cemented us as like collaborators and it taught me how to be a good collaborator and how to support my collaborators. And I just thought this was, I remember Tony and I, we did the first issue and we were in a bar. We always had our company meetings in bars and usually mm -hmm. descended into a wrestling match on the floor. Um, but I remember Tony, this book is so good that you and I will be working on Spider-Man in six months. I promise. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been 20 years, and I'm sorry, Tony. <laughs> it never quite happened. It might six months from now, right? You'll get a call from Marvel. Hey, we need to do a one-shot. Uh, what's the event? Uh, they're doing that one. They're doing that some death of a friend, and it, someone dies in a Spider-Man issue. You know they're going to drag it out. And, and yes, comic book fans, I'm just making fun because com yeah, comic death books. of anything. I just come on. Is there, is there another gimmick we can use besides the death of this person when you know they have a movie coming out in a year and they're not going to yeah. let that slide? Uh, yeah, that's it's. I just roll my eyes. And I just, it just washes over me. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not reading the death of or big event oh, no. comic books. I still love corporate comic books. I still yeah. read. But I, I, I avoid the marketing comics. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say watch Marvel six months from now, quote unquote, six months from now, you'll get a call from them and go, hey, you know, you have an artist you want to work with. We have this Spider-Man one-shot. You know. <laughs> well, I don't think anyone starts off with Spider-Man. They'll put me on like a speedball or something. Yeah. <laughs> They'll put me on some forgotten thing. Uh, I wouldn't say no to the work, but also, I love storytelling. And if it's for Marvel, if it's for me, if it's for anyone, um, I love telling stories. And the like, the metric of success twenty years ago, I thought that's the goal. We got to do Spider-Man. And now I'm like, you know what? I'm I'm happy doing my own thing. If, if Marvel and DC never calls, it's okay. It's, mm -hmm. it's I'm a success. I get to tell my stories the way I want to. Dark Horse was very, very uh, supportive and a great home yes. uh, for past tense and a great working experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm telling the stories I want to tell. I have no complaints whatsoever. And that is going to be the perfect segue before we get into past tense. I want to read a quote from Rob. Now, Rob, I'm going to butcher your name very badly. Caprilozzi from comicsmonsters.com. Now, I know he probably quoted probably in one of your past works, but mm -hmm. I love this quote because to me it fits because, Jason, I'm, I'm sorry, but past tense is the first work. I know you've been around. Yeah, I remember. I know, I know. I'm not a household name, and you're forgiven <laughs> for not knowing. <laughs> it's okay. But I love the quote that Rob gave. McNamara crafts a solid story with many 
intricate layers. And I agree because we're going to start going into past tense. For listeners, can you tell listeners what is the story about? Past tense is about a camera operator named Ashley. And she works at a company called Past Tense. And what they do is they send camera drones into the past to view historical events, not to change history, but to watch them as they actually occurred. And she discovers something in the past that threatens her in the present mm -hmm. uh, without giving too much away. So there is a, a threat in the past, there's a threat in the present, and there's actually something in the future that it's all going to collide uh, in the climax of this story. And it's also about our sort of loss of privacy and technology yes. and how with all these technological advances, the most vulnerable among us uh, become exploited. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I put that in the in a slasher book. It is a, a thriller uh, that hopefully gives you something to think about when it's over. It it really is. Um, I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit because I want to say what I love, what I love about this story it kind of sort of reminds me of the classic movie Total Recall, Brainstorm, Strange Days that deals with memories. Kind of sort, it kind of that vibe. Mm -hmm. you know, not, not, not exactly how it is. But the other thing I always loved about Total Recall and Strange Days too was that um, even though they had this, this uh, thing that dealt with memories, it's kind of set in the future, but it also dealt with... Um, today's problems too as well and it's not and it's not we're not looking like a blade runner we're talking about where it's the the world looks a little different but it still feels real and like that was that was, that was important to us we didn't want it to feel like the jetsons are so far removed yeah so i was like escape from new york i think it was a good that only takes place like 15 or 17 years after it was made mm -hmm. it's the near future it's right around the corner Yes. If the world looks so different, then there's no emotional connection to it. And the other thing I loved about, and I'll get and I'll talk a little bit more about the past tense companies. The other thing, the world that you created, it again, like you said, you want to make sure it's real, people can recognize it because you don't and it's um you you kind of point out what would happen in the future, like population explosion, mm -hmm. the housing situation. I'm not going to spoil anything, but I love how Ashley and her friend shares literally a storage it's studio. And I'm not going to say... It's a storage room, pretty much. Yes. Um, and that's, they've got to share it, and they're lucky to have it. Yes. Yeah. And then also, too, um, and I'm going to start talking about the company, too, is that past tense, there's also ethical and you deal with a little bit of the ethical and legal issues too as well. And you describe it, and, well, not to get into spoilers, but you describe it very early on in the first two pages. I'm going to get know. that out of the way. And it was it sets up everything. It's, oh, thank you, my friend. I worry about exposition. I don't want to put too many words on the page, but you've got to acclimate people and get answer a lot of questions they might have up front. Yes. Like, what is the technology? How does it work? How does it work yes. in the framework of the legal system? And then you drop it in. Um, and you have to do all of this through a point of view character that you can empathize with, which yes. is why we created Ashley. So there's a lot of big ideas in past tense, but it, it, they're meaningless unless you feel for the people moving through these mechanisms. So I didn't want 
Ashley to be like a Reed Richards type or some sort of super genius mm -hmm. scientist. She's just a worker. She might as well yes. be a, a like a barista or a bartender. Like it's it's a service job. Mm -hmm. So even though there's a lot of money going on and there's this fantastic element of putting cameras to the past, she's just trying to keep a roof over her head. She's hustling. Yeah. She's looking for fresh angles to do under the table deals. So in this world, one of the best things that you can find as a camera operator is finding an exclusive, finding a historical event that no one else has even heard of. Yes. And I think I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts and a lot of them will cover the same material. And I ask myself, are we running out of true crime to look at? Mm -hmm. Like there's surely must have been events that we don't even know happened. Mm -hmm. For example, the the Bay Area rapist, the Golden State rapist, it took decades for people to realize that he was the same person who committed these crimes in Northern California and Southern California. You know, like it took forever for them to link them. So I think there must be hundreds of other events out there that we'll never even know about. Yes. Mm -hmm. So putting it in the framework of this world, of course, if you could put a camera through time, you might want to like reinforce your religious beliefs. You may want to see the Big Bang. Yes. There's so many wonderful secrets in history that we could explore. But in this book, guys are just using this service to peep on women in the past. They're just looking for the most salacious events they could find or horrific events like who like the Black Dahlia's murder. Yes. Um, the uh, Son of Sam. Uh, who was Jack the Ripper? Who was the Zodiac Killer? It's, it's not to enlighten. It's to titillate. Because every time I see a technological advance in the real world, I see guys using it to creep on women. Yes. And I think this is why we can't have nice things. You know, uh, Apple comes out with the the AirPods so you can track your luggage, but guys are then dropping them in women's purses so they can follow them home and find out where they live. Mm -hmm. So it's with every technological advance, there's an immediate abuse. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to play with that. It, it's not This book is not going to make you feel better about humanity. Sorry to say. Maybe I'll the human to... spirit, but not humanity at large. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Um. And that's the thing I wanted to comment. Uh, going back to the um, that you know people who pay, you know basically are paying money, and even though they come to Ashley going, well, I want to see you know I want to watch the big you know the Big Bang. I want to see you know like you said, I want to see you know the crucifixion. She probably has some of a small portion of those, but most of her clients who can pay will go. I want to see, you know, who murdered the black dolly, and I want to see how it was done. Yeah, and, and and it's more of a, it's it's a, it just to me what I really love about the story is that it comments on how some of us are voyeuristic, like you said, how we every advanced technology we can use it for good, but sometimes we also use it for the wrong reason. Right, and so I was. I was also thinking, like, if you want to look up someone that you remember from high school or 20 years ago or an ex, you could just put their name in Facebook and see everything about them. You could immediately just, like, drop in on their lives, look around, and leave again. Yeah. So I thought, how do you ex push that to the ninth degree? Uh, now you can put a camera 50 years in the past and put a camera yes. right in their face. And there are times in my life where I think I'm alone, and I'm like, am I alone? Mm -hmm. I feel like someone's looking at me. Yeah. So then am I entertaining for someone 50 years in the future? We're 100 years in the future. I could be. Yeah. Because the I'm thing... not very entertaining. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think they'll stop watching pretty quick. But um, so that's sort of voyeurism. And I do, we do look at that. And I do at some point ask the reader, are we, are we voyeuristic now by reading yes. this? 
Yes. You know, I want to ask like, when, when is, when do we look away? Mm -hmm. That's no, that's, that's a very good, that's true. That really is, yeah. you know, because just because we see something on, let's say it's, whether it's Twitter, someone is catching something in a fight in, I'll give you a very good example because I saw on a, on a, 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 a very prominent news website, they, they were showing a videotape of a fight at Disneyland, you know, the mm -hmm. whole fight. And, you know, I'm watching this whole thing. The, the clip is like about a minute and like a minute and a half, but you're right. It's like, when do I stop to turn this off? Because this, it, this is really bad, but yet it's like, Oh my God, look at this, you know? Yeah, it's it's it can be an addiction, and we're watching. Sometimes we're just watching the mundaneness of someone else's life. Reality TV show. Yeah, and I, I think a lot about how much, how much am I not getting done because my attention is being divided by these things that aren't, aren't really giving me any nutrient. And also, am I contributing to um, like non-ethical true crime by consuming so much? Yes. You know, at what point am I contributing to the exploitation of people's pain? Yes. Um, and, and I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. So I don't want to make it seem like past tense is a message book. It's really, it's about no. actually surviving in this, in this world. But I think good science fiction should mm -hmm. ask you and good horror should say something about the time it was made in. Yes. I think of, I think of Jaws is a great example of that, you know, Jaws, is saying something about the world at that time, even though they never go to New York City. Brody was a New York City cop. Mm -hmm. and New York City was in a really rough spot. Yes. So he moved his family to Amity to keep them safe. And surprise, surprise, the shark is not going to let his family be safe. And yeah. he's got to confront his fear. And he never yes. looks at the camera and says, now I'm going to confront my fear. But there's a strong theme that holds it all together. So even though it's an adventurous, probably the greatest film ever made, right? Yes. Um, it still gives you something to think about at the end. And I think good sci-fi should do that. Good horror should do that. Yes. These stories are written in a time and place. They're written now. Yes. And in 10 years, this story might be passe. Yeah. And 10 years ago, it would have had no no relevance to the world that we live in. And, and you're right. I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to keep focusing on, you know, the the message because you're right. It's not, you know, it's, it's not about you're trying to say a message because you're telling a very good story. You're telling a very good story on... Uh, a very good that, I, that we don't want to spoil <laughs> yes that yeah this is a this is a thriller kind of it's... mystery and there are twists and turns and you and i are both talking around a lot of that because you don't want to spoil it for anybody yes and but the i think the thing i love about this book jason is there's layers to it and the other thing is it's you know it's it's a very good story but it has layers to it and i love it that's the thing i really love about it, you know? thank you my friend um we worked hard <laughs> let's see um i am going to ask you you know, when you when you decided to put this correct me if i'm wrong you, the story is set in 2038 is that correct i, can't I believe so yeah okay. you I know, um, i went through a couple different versions i think i landed on 2038 yeah. okay All right um because again i love the world that ashley lives in it's you know, i recognize it and you know, and we've already talked about some of the issues that are still being addressed in the future. I'm just asking, did you have kind of an outline what the world was going to be at that time, or some type of Bible? Or I, I, for me personally, I find story Bibles are constraining. I think if uh -huh. you you could do that later, 
Okay. Uh, but you lose a lot of the exploration and discovery with the story Bible because you're locked into a framework. And I'm a lot looser than that. Mm -hmm. So I had the idea of the mechanism first. We're going to send cameras to the past mm -hmm. because I'm always listening to true podcasts or listening to or reading historical events. Mm -hmm. and, and just a well-placed video camera could solve so many questions. Yes. Right. So I thought, I don't want to change history. I just want to know the truth. Will I ever know the truth? Mm -hmm. um, there was a killer on Long Island. He's still there. The Long Island serial killer. And at one point, he was almost caught on camera. And they have no idea who he is to this day. And he just mm -hmm. ju was just off camera at one point. I thought, if we could have turned that camera an inch, yeah. we could have solved seven murders. Yeah. So that was the idea. Um, and then I, I played with the idea... And I built up the world and how could this work and how do we solve these problems? But in and of itself, a story Bible isn't a story and mm -hmm. the idea isn't a story. So you have to find a character and you have to mm -hmm. find a, somebody with a want and a need within that world. Mm -hmm. So how do those things contrast and support each other? So I came up with the idea first and a rough idea of like how that world would work. What is the threat? And then you write a character who can live in that world. Mm -hmm. And then that changes the ideas and the story and the plot. So I write uh, a full outline and I make sure that that works from beginning to end. It's like a page and a half, two pages. Mm -hmm. And that goes to Brett, uh, Brett Israel, our wonderful editor. And uh, he says, yeah, this looks good. Let's do this. Maybe think of this. Don't forget to humanize the main character. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, you got it. So then I write a full script and I write dialogue, but it's really kind of placeholder dialogue uh -huh. uh, because at, in, in the in the act of writing the script, you discover more about the character. And mm -hmm. you discover more about the world. And maybe you change something that was different in the outline. Yeah. So you're always discovering things and tweaking things and moving things around a little bit. So like you mentioned the year, the year changed. Sometimes it was 2043. Sometimes it was 2039. Mm -hmm. I landed on 2038 because the I want the future to feel just around the corner. Yes. And also when we flash back to the past, it's the world that we've lived through. Mm -hmm. So when Ashley looks at her own family history... Uh, yes. You know, it's the 70s, it's the 90s, it's the early aughts. Mm -hmm. It's times that we were like, oh, yeah, I was just off camera. I was in that world somewhere. And I feel like that's that's the the tough part with the story that is fantastical. Mm -hmm. Is where are we in this story? Mm -hmm. Is there an entry point for us? Uh, is there a human element that we can launch? So I go back and forth. And even after the even after the art is delivered, I'm still tweaking dialogue and changing uh -huh. a lot of dialogue. Yeah. Because I've discovered something in Alberto's artwork. Alberto is so gifted with facial grammar and body language yes. that then I could change the dialogue and, and take advantage of that or remove dialogue uh -huh. because he, he is telling the story so well without my words. Uh -huh. So then I take a final pass and I'm still tweaking things, uh -huh. uh, which drive, can drive an editor uh, crazy. It, it, if I want to give a shout out to anybody, it's the proofreader at Dark Horse. Because you can you can run uh, your document through a Google check or a spell check, but then I'm rewriting dialogue on the page. Uh -huh. So the the my hat my really goes off to the dark horse proofreader, who then has to go through my all the pages and check my typos on the page. Uh -huh. Ooh, a, a tough job, but the luxury part of the, the beautiful thing of having the support of dark horse is is that there's a proofreader, that uh -huh. there's an editor. That there's mm -hmm. a design team that goes in and does all that beautiful interior work on the book. Yes. Um, it was a very posh experience. <laughs> I want to go back to the character Ashley because, like you mm -hmm. said, that basically she's a worker. And I want to comment in the first two pages, I fell in love with Ashley. 
because she's just some because at first you see her she's doing this i'm your trauma analysis okay i'm going to show you this thing that happened privately with you know president you know john f kennedy and that's it and then then you hear you know you you know um and then she starts talking about you know this is one of the jobs i could find you know i can't use my sociology degree because she's like pretty much everyone a lot of you know a lot of um recent college graduates yeah it's you know they either pick you know right correct me if i'm wrong i don't know if it's still true but like i think like the top two or three um majors is always sociology or psychology yes. you know who are the degrees that you really can't do anything with you know <laughs> unless you go for your master's and your doctorate, then you know yeah, so when this technology came out overnight, her sociology degree finally became in demand. So she had this useless degree, probably dead, mm -hmm. um, financially challenged in this overcrowded world. And then this is just a, a job. Yes. Her, her, her heart's not in it. And she's got to deal with people that she probably doesn't really like. And if you've ever had a customer service job, you have your, your front face, your customer face. Yes. But you have this internal dialogue where you're like, oh, God, this person again, please leave. Why? Why? Yes. So I wanted it to be relatable because we've all had those kind of jobs. Again, I didn't want her to be some sort of egghead scientist dealing with things that the majority of us don't. The most of us have had a customer service job. Yes. It is. It should be required for all Americans to work in customer service. Yes. Mm -hmm. so we would have a lot more empathy for one another and patience. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted her to feel relatable and human. So even though she's got this sort of exterior bravado, it's almost like... Uh, this thing that she was created to get through the world. The world's overcrowded. She's constantly being uh, sexualized. It has no privacy. Yes. So she's got to be strong. But internally, she is, you know, she has a good, great, great relationship with her grandmother. There is some trauma in her background, in her family that she's also looking into. It's the same way that we, it's very common now for people to do Ancestry.com to look back and see their ancestry, to see where they come from. Mm -hmm. Ashley can use her company credits to put a camera through her own past to see where things went wrong in her own family up mm -hmm. to a certain degree. And then of course her past and this killer's past intersect yes. in a way that's surprising that creates a domino effect that puts her in danger in the present without also, giving too much away. Yes. And the other thing, I and I don't want to give, again, I'm not, giving too much because the other thing with past tense too is not only you want to see that exclusive oh guess what they did behind closed doors now we can see what they did yeah or or you know or some type of um, higher calling of yes i want to see when rome was built or something but for ashley she looks she uses past tense to not only look where she came from but almost like relive all her painful memories you know, her, yeah, her family's memories, and and it's it's very heartbreaking, you know. And yeah, it's, there's a heartbreaking scene in the book that we struggled with, but I put it in there because it was actually something that did happen to my own mother. My own mother has passed now, but she had always told me this story about something her grandfather had did, nice. and it's it's pretty horrific. And I, you know, I, I'm a dog lover, yes. and this was a tough oh. scene to put in there. And when oh. I would show the script to my friends, they would be like, "Why did I have? Why did you have to do that?" It's, I'm like it because it's actually really happened and actually it was even much worse in real life i had to trim it down and simplify it for the book uh so yeah there is she's looking at her own history and wondering where her family went wrong and that's a big part of the book and she's also 
doing these exclusives under the table from her employer to get extra money yes. to get her grandmother into a better living situation. So she's got a real, a good cause mm -hmm. for some of the underhanded things that she's doing at work. She's not your traditional hero. Mm -hmm. She's a survivor, which I think we can all empathize with in this world that we're all living in right now. There is one, I'm sorry, I forgot to write mm -hmm. down, there was one character because after I sent you the questions, I, I was able to finish reading the rest of the story, which I think is great. But I love, because there's that one character, the um, that kind of like the housing authority or housing and health agent or something. Habitat, yeah. You know. Yeah. He's he's the helpful guy. Yes. he He's that kind of that knight in shining armor. We're not, mm -hmm. I don't want to say too much about him, but it was like, this is so, you know, he, he's a real nice guy. He's a stand-up guy. He's the only guy in this story that doesn't want anything from Ashley. Yes. And mm -hmm. he just wants to help her out of, literally just help her. Yeah. yeah. And I think, hopefully, I mean, I had someone like that in my own life mm -hmm. when I was a teenager. Someone that just uh, gave me a leg up and saw me and wanted to do, just help me escape my situation. Help me improve my life. Mm -hmm. You know, just altruistic. Yes. And now that I'm a teacher... I, I see kids where I'm like, you just need someone to listen. Like you need just a little bit of direction can get you out of this sort of like mental log jam that you're yeah. in. Um, so I don't have kids of my own. So teaching has been, um, it's been a great outlet for me to sort of impart the modicum of knowledge that I've amassed in my life to mm -hmm. help solve someone else's problems. Mm -hmm. And then I do, you know, a little mentoring with other comic book creators, younger comic book creators and trying to alleviate some of the mental stress of this game. I want people to make all new mistakes, but don't make the mistakes that I made. <laughs> no, but thank so you. That, that character was also, but she doesn't trust him in the beginning. Yes. You know, you oh, don't yes. know that he's altruistic. He could be another, another creep. You never know. Mm -hmm. Jason, thank you very much for answering that question. Thank you for sharing <laughs> that. Thank you very much for sharing that. Of course. All right. Um, I'm going to move on. So how did you team up with Dark Horse? Mm. Luck, 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 luck. Um, I was introduced to my editor, Brett, by someone, another creator that he had worked with. He was a friend of mine. And he was like, you know, you and Brett would hit it off. I think uh, you and Brett had the same sensibilities. I'm going to arrange an introduction. So I met Brett and I said, hey, I've got a couple of ideas I'm working on. Can I send them over? And he was like, sure. So I sent over three ideas, three pitches, which I highly recommend to any creators out there. If you ever get the chance to talk to an editor, uh, a producer, any any sort of anyone between you and your goals, if you have the opportunity, don't give them one pitch. Give them three. Mm -hmm. If they don't like the one, you might never be in that room again. You might never be in that conversation again. Mm -hmm. So give them three to choose from. Um, it's called the elevator pitch, right? If you're in an elevator with Steven Spielberg, can you give him your pitch before you get to the next floor? If it's a three-floor ride, give him three pitches. Maybe he'll mm -hmm. like one of them. So Brett liked one of them, and he asked me to write it up, and I did. And we just it just worked. So from there, we got the contract, and then we looked for... We had a discussion about who's going to draw the book. And I had had a great experience working with Alberto on the Cicada. And I thought, wouldn't it be great for him and I to have a project at Dark Horse and just have a, a, that experience. To, the, the experience in the Cicada was rough. Mm -hmm. And uh, through that roughness, he and I bonded. He and I and the colorist, Paul Little, uh, who's just a fantastic colorist and a great guy. Mm -hmm. The three of us really bonded. So when it came time for me to have like an easy project, quote unquote, yes. Um, I wanted to bring them on board and be like, hey, I, I owe you guys a good project. I owe you guys a project mm -hmm. that's going to stay on track. 
and I'm glad I did. And uh, through that, Alberto and I have just bonded and and Paul. So the three of us will continue to work together in some fashion. We, I, we just clicked really well. And that's a hard thing to find in comics. Mm-hmm. Yes. People that you click with. It's all about the collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, money is an issue. We have to pay them. Mm-hmm. So uh, funding, you always have to be creative with funding when you're an indie creator. Mm-hmm. So we had obviously the support of Dark Horse on this book. So whatever happens next is really going to be dictated by where, who I can trick into giving us money to pay Peter uh, and Alberto. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or Paul, rather. Paul, Little, and Alberto. Since you mentioned Cicada, you and Alberto and Paul have worked on that. In this book, in past tense, I think it was like the either fifth or sixth page. Whose idea was it to put the Cicada killers in 1993 in the background? <laughs> so the exterior of past tense has like a marquee, like a movie theater marquee, yes. where these different things that you can see, right? All these different like horrific things that you could like to choose for you like oh i'd love to see the black values murder i'd love to see this so i did all the photoshopping and i put all those titles in myself and i just thought well that would be a nice nod to the cicada let's keep it in universe maybe this is the same world yeah Uh, and because alberto drew that it's the alberto verse you know (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i'm glad that you caught that i don't know anyone else is going to catch that but um we'll get back to the cicada uh, alberto and i we have plans to get back to that and we'll probably self-publish that through Kickstarter. Oh, okay. And then more and more. I just I just love that team. And the more you work with someone, the more you get to know each other and trust each other. Mm-hmm. And you just bring out the best. And Alberto's art is just, he gets better every page. I just love getting work from him. Um, I would love to do a book with him that is more silent and more just relying on him to tell the story. Uh-huh. Typically, I'm a minimalist where I don't put a lot of dialogue in the books. But because this is a sci-fi book, Mm-hmm. There's an interior and an exterior monologue. Yes. Um, the dialogue, there's a lot of words in this book. There's more words usually than I would use in a comic. And when I was plotting it out, I found some space at the end of the second act where I had been really conservative with my um, scenes. They were shorter than I thought they were going to be. So I had like four to five pages at the end. I'm like, oh, I'm going to give Alberto an action sequence. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. And I opened it up and they are the best pages in the book. Yes. I was I wrote that for him so he could cut loose. Uh, there's hardly any dialogue on it. I just wanted him to have a spot to shine. You know, yes. if you're in a band, you got to give the drummer a drum solo, mm-hmm. and I wanted to just give him a big runway uh, spot just to be all him. And of course, we got. I think the best page of the book is from that sequence. And in the back of the book, we have a process page of like we show how we did it, and that's the page that everyone loved and chose. Oh, so okay. You got to trust your artist. I'm just asking, was this intended to be an, ori- an original graphic novel or a miniseries? I get that question a lot because the book is broken into four chapters. So it almost seems like a miniseries that has been collected. But it, it is, um, I, re- I write a very specific way and I write in a three-act structure. Mm-hmm. And all almost all of my graphic novels, Ghost Band, The Rattler, uh, The March Confederacy, Continuity, First Moon... Um, even less than hero they're all 96 pages mm-hmm. and every act is 24 pages so the first act is 24 pages act 2a is 24 2b mm-hmm. is 24 and act 3 is 24 and then when i submit it to a publisher i say i give them the option you could do this as a mini series or a graphic novel yeah it's not going to change how i write it at all mm-hmm. um so if you tore the book into fourths you would have four issues mm-hmm. and that pretty much goes for any of my books i let them decide but 
financially, a miniseries is a, a much greater financial gamble for the publisher. Mm -hmm. And if you're not someone who puts asses in seats, right? If you're Brian K. Vaughn, you do the miniseries because people are mm -hmm. going to show up for Brian K. Vaughn. Yes. Or uh, Donnie Cates. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned, I've been around for 20 years and you'd never heard of me. So mm -hmm. my name, my name alone is not going to get you to pick up a book. Mm -hmm. But a con a good strong concept like past tense probably will. So Dark Horse said, we'll do this as a, a graphic novel. And personally, I love graphic novels. Mm -hmm. I think you could probably get a better, bigger audience with a miniseries. But if you're lucky enough to create tension and a mood in a comic book of horror, horror is really hard to create yes. in comics. So if you if you took a month between each chapter of this book, you might not be able to follow it. I've got to reestablish that dread, that sort of um, tension in the background. I'd rather hold it yes. and do it as a graphic novel. And that's how I read The Walking Dead. Um, I love reading The Walking Dead collections because you got one big chunk of dread. Uh -huh. But if I had to piece it out month by month, uh, it's hard to reestablish that. Yes. So, uh, But we, I did ask uh, Dark Horse if we could do chapter breaks. And they were really supportive of that because yes. the book is dark. It is, um, you know, it, it's got some heavy themes going on. And I wanted to just have a chapter break, give you a chance to reset, show you an image that's about to happen in the chapter to sort of get you ready for that because we're playing with the asynchronicity of time and then drop you back into it. So maybe you want to put it down, get a glass of water, pet a dog, and then come back. Yes. Yeah. But I'm going to say this works perfectly as a graphic novel. Because like you said, you want to hold, you want to hold that mood. You want to hold that tension. Hold that moment. Yeah. You know, superhero comics are easy, right? Every, you can, they punch someone in the mouth. You can get into that. Action is easy. Yes. Comedy is easy to get back into it. Mm -hmm. But horror and dread and this sort of mood and tension in a comic book is, is harder to create. Yes. And if you're lucky enough to hold it, I don't want to let you go. And just as a consumer, I, I prefer graphic novels. I don't, I see all the, I see all your long boxes behind you. I sold my, all my collection uh, a couple of moves ago. I'm like, I can't be a museum for comic books anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some lucky guy on uh, Craigslist got 24 long boxes for $500. With the caveat, I'm not moving anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you bring a friend, you loaded all this up. <laughs> Someone, uh, and so, someone answered and go, I'm there, man. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then, of course, after they take the boxes, I realized, oh, I had the first appearance of Harley Quinn in there. Oh, I had the first Carnage in there. Oh, I had a bunch of Jim Lee X-Men in there. Oh, I had a bunch of Todd McFarlane Spider-Man in there. <laughs> oh, well, it's just money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> money would ruin me. I was going to ask you an off-the-cuff question, like, did you cherry pick before you sold him? <laughs> I did. I took all my, uh, I took, uh, like, the death of Gwen Stacy. I took out the first appearance of the Punisher. I, I took out my uh, my Ditko Spider Man, and those I put on eBay. No, I paid no. my rent for months. Yeah, I think I got a thousand dollars on eBay for that uh, first Punisher. Ah, but still, that I mean, that's. I had I was really into collecting, and now I'm a minimalist. I don't want to own things. Yes. I want to keep it real simple. I went to a different place in my life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I thought my collection was overwhelming me. I. Jason, I but <laughs> to anyone with a big collection, sell it piece by piece. Don't. I, I was just like, I want it out of the house. It was yeah. time to move again. I was like, I didn't want to move all these boxes. I had them in storage spaces. I drove them up in a van. Yeah. I mean, I probably paid more in gas in moving them than I got for them in the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, but, I just got frustrated and started fresh. Well, and 
comic fans, I'm going to say this. Do not be offended. Because I'm going to say, before I got married, um, I was rent, I was living in a duplex. Rent was pretty good. I had tons of comics. Yeah. You know, tons. But my wife's going, you're not bringing all this here. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. Cherry pick. And let's and I'm going to say, let's be honest, probably only maybe what, 5% will probably be worth something. 95% is dollar bin stuff. You know? Yeah, if you're lucky, yeah. And then, then they'll drop this. Then, and then, and then sometimes you'll hear that one issue that'll spike in price. Our DC Comics number eighty-seven, when they introduce Superboy Prime, shoots up to a hundred bucks because Infinite when uh, the Infinite Crisis came out, he became the villain. And I'm going, I sold that for maybe fifty cents. You know, <laughs> yeah, you, you never know. I know. Yeah, I, I feel like you should collect for the joy of it. And if you're trying oh. to make money, buy stocks. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but it's always funny. It's like, oh man, I had that. <laughs> but then yeah, all it's, it's it's possible to it's impossible to predict. And if it brings you joy, awesome. And if you, I sold those comic books, the guy who bought them was so happy. Yeah. And I was like, you know, if it brings you joy, go for it. Oh yeah. But then also too, the other, the other, the other one. 20 or 30 um, issues of DC Comics presents with probably less than 10 cents a piece. You know? so... Yeah, but and again, like, am, I, am I really going to go back and reread those? Yeah. No, I rarely read anything twice. Mm -hmm. It's the rare comic book that I'll have a collection of that I'll pick up every now and then and just marvel at what, what they've done. You know, oh, yeah. Brubaker, uh, like I'll buy Brubaker collections. Um, I think he's a really great writer and he voice. But yes. again, I read his work and I think. I don't want to write like this, but I, I I really love someone who only he could write those books the way he writes them. Yes. And I think that's the strength of a good writer is that you find your voice and only you could tell that story that way. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of the books could be written by anybody. Yes. Um, you've already gave a couple shout outs to Alberto and Paul. Um, do you want to give us uh, any more shout outs? Um, I know you gave a shout out to whoever was the proofreader the at proofreader. Dark Horse. We had a great editor. Everyone at Dark Horse I'm was editor, just... Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I'm in Portland, and they're not far. I've never been to their offices, but I, I have great conversations with them. They're supportive. They love comic books. My editor was really supportive of me telling this story the way that we wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, minimal notes, and they were good notes that we changed. And for me, I worked at a comic book store when I got out of high school. So like 1994, I was working in a, uh, 94, mm -hmm. 95, I was working in comic book shops. And I remember putting those Dark Horse Legends, it was like a, a line yes. uh, on the shelf where with like Mike Mignola doing Hellboy, Frank Miller doing Sin City, uh, Concrete was another one. Yes. Uh, John Byrne was doing uh, Next Men, I think it yes. was. And just, they, they were heavy. They were like cardstock that they just felt substantial books. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there were not a lot of comic books was in the doldrums, I would say. Yeah. There was a lot of variant covers. Marvel's about to go bankrupt. The Clone Saga was driving me away from Spider-Man. Really, you had James Robinson on Starman, and you had Jim Ostrander on The Spectre. And those were like adult comic books yes. uh, that I just loved to bits. And then the, the Dark Horse books, I was like, these are great books. These mm -hmm. are light in the dark at a time when comic books are not great. So I had always had like a really soft spot for Dark Horse. I had a soft spot for Image, and it was the same thing. It was just meant like the world to me to be published by Image, 
and it means the world to me to have Dark Horse. You know, Dark Horse is very selective in what they do. And, you know, to have that entity say, this book is good enough to have our logo on it. Mm-hmm. Like that makes me feel like a millionaire because mm-hmm. um, I grew up with these things and and it means something to me. So yeah, uh, I might, I, I couldn't be happier. So, you know, this could be the, you never know. Every book could be your last. This is my last book. I'm going out on top. Mm-hmm. Sonia Harris, the logo design. Mm-hmm. I love Sorry, this is kind of enough off the cup thing I, I just added in this morning was I love the logo design because it kind of remind me kind of somewhat to a video game um titles. You know, right. I kind of love it. Yeah. So Interesting. Did, did when like how did that come about? Or did Sonia's is a Sonia's an old friend and she has done a lot of uh, like logo design over the years, especially for like image books. And I just trust her. I also think you want to work with people that have a different perspective than you and a different life experience than you. Um, and I didn't want, you know, if, if I could not just have to be like four boys making a book about a woman, <laughs> another, another pair of eyes to sort of soften me and to look at what I might miss. And so anytime I work with Sonia or someone who's doing design work, I always do some mock-ups first. Like I'm thinking something like this, or I'm thinking something like that. And then she comes in and goes, Oh yeah, those are terrible. You should do this. And I go, Oh, thank God you're right. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So I get my bad ideas, my trite ideas out of the way. And she comes in and she's, I mean, I wish I had deeper pockets. I would hire her all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's just generous with her vision. Um, she's done a couple logos for me over the years. So we had an idea of how the cover specifically, you want people to see that cover and not necessarily know what the plot is, but yes. have an idea about how to feel about the work. Covers are their own art. Covers don't have to tell the truth. Covers have to give you a sensation. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for a romantic period piece, you know past tense is not your book mm-hmm. from that cover, from mm-hmm. the treatment that uh, Sonia did. So she did the, the logo, which is probably one of the first things we did for the book. And then she took Alberto's, again, Alberto and I worked on the cover, came up with an image that we thought was striking. He yes. did probably a dozen different iterations. We put them in the back of the book because they were so good. Any one of them would have been a great cover. Mm-hmm. We landed on this one. He drew it up. Paul did his great coloring work on it. And then we gave it to Sonia to add almost like a text, like a, like a video texture to it. So we feel like we are invading Ashley's privacy as we look at that cover. Mm-hmm. We are being voyeuristic on that cover. Mm-hmm. And Ashley knows that you're watching. Um, so there is, I can see it on my shelf. There's a um, Patricia Highsmith book. I think it's in A Dog's Ransom. She's an author that I love. And she mentions at one point in the book that um, if you're stalking your prey, you never look them in the eye because one eye attracts another. So in the cover, I really wanted to have the eyes facing out. So if you're in a comic book store, your eyes are going to look at another set of eyes. Yes. It's going to catch your attention. I hope. And and you'll know if that book's for you just on that cover image or not. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. That's Yeah. That's to, to me, that's a successful cover. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any future projects that you can talk about right now? Yeah, I can I can tell you nothing, nothing. Okay. Um, so I had a Kickstarter that is running late and it's for Ghost Band. And I finally have all the art for Ghost Band and it's lettered. And now I'm just, I'm saving the money so I can send it to the printer. And then the rest of my year is going to be shipping that book out to the backers. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and paying my art, paying Paul Little, the colorist. I owe him some money for that. So I don't want to take on anything. Uh, I don't have anything on my plate except delivering for my Kickstarter backers for Ghost Band. And then next year, we'll start from scratch and we'll okay. see where we're at next year. Okay. But no, there's nothing in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. I uh, I want to um, unburden myself. I want to just focus on getting Ghost Band out, get the backers. And then I would love to be at zero and have nothing on my plate. Uh-huh. I think that would be a good feeling. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Marvel, DC, don't come knocking. <laughs> <laughs> don't you dare offer me a job. <laughs> I want to drive Lyft for the rest of the year. <laughs> All right, Jason. I'm slowly wrapping things up. Um, I know this is an audio podcast. I see that you're wearing a Halloween, the original from the original movie, Halloween, oh, back yeah. in 1978. You have a, I want to say in the background, um, is that a Halloween three um, lunchbox? And you also well, have this is a, a Marvel superheroes on Fox. Marvel? I do have uh, these are Halloween tiki mugs from Mondo ah. over here. I've got all the novelizations from the movies. Wow. And of course, here is my Michael Myers hot toy uh, figure. I uh, yeah, I'm a huge, huge fan. Um, all these are John Carpenter prints on the wall that I had signed by him at various points. Uh, yeah, I'm a tremendous John Carpenter fan, and I think he, more than any comic book, is probably the biggest influence on my life. Mm-hmm. As a musician, as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, his films always create a sense of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And it feels like you could turn that camera in any direction, and the world would just be expansive and keep going and keep yes. going. Um, I also think he his music creates its own tone and feel to a book so when i'm writing i'm always listening to horror soundtracks john carpenter or bernard herman or ennio marcone uh-huh. and to me that helps inspire the story uh-huh. whereas if i'm listening to music with words then i'm just going to write those words yeah so yeah no I, I i love i love horror i love what horror can do for you i love a very specific kind of horror uh-huh. more um psychological i think the the evil within all of us is more interesting than like an unstoppable killing machine that's just going to chop you to bits. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so like the, the torture porn genre, I've never seen a song movie that just mm-hmm. doesn't think it would appeal to me. Hostile doesn't really, I don't think that would appeal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing that you and I could be pushed to do something awful is more interesting to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. The evil within us all. Off the cuff question. I'm sorry. Kind of, um, I know you say you have um, John Carpenter's, you know, uh, movie posters in the background. You mentioned something about John Carpenter. I'm sorry, did you get any of them signed by him? Or yeah, I did. He was on tour, so that one over there, it's the Mondo variant. I had that one signed, and I have a Thing poster up here. Oh, I'll, I'll turn the camera uh, up there, signed by him, and then a little uh, Halloween poster signed by him. He was on tour, and then I, you know, I bought the VIP package so I could. Nice. Talk to him for 15 seconds. I'm sure it was the best 15 seconds of his life. And yeah, I put the posters down and I tell him how wonderful he is and how much big influence he is. And he says, thanks, kid. Signs the posters and off I go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, he likes to talk about basketball. He likes <laughs> college basketball. And I don't know enough about college <laughs> basketball to strike a conversation with him. Yeah. Uh, so I've seen him at concert twice and both times I did the VIP thing so I could put stuff in front of him to sign. Um, but it's, to me, it's just like there are very few living legends and he is one of them, mm-hmm. right? So it would be like, you know, maybe Stan Lee, Iggy Pop, and John Carpenter. 
so yeah, just and I saw those movies at the right age. I was young. Yeah. I was terrified of Michael Myers. I thought he was outside the door. I thought he was behind the shower curtain. Yeah. Um, just that prime evil and that he doesn't talk and that he's featureless. You imprint your fear onto that. Mm-hmm. Like Michael Myers showed up and said, hey, kid, I'm going to get you. You'd be like, well, I yeah. know people like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's the unknown that terrifies a lot of us. The other thing I have to say, I'm sorry, I'm kind of going off the cuff here, but um, please. the thing I love about the original Halloween movie, there was really no gory violence. Mm-mm. I mean, it's rated R and you know, you see the killings, but it's yeah. there's really no gore. The other thing too was, like you said, he's, you know, Michael Myers is a shapeless thing because I still remember the scene where um, in the kitchen where he picks up one of the guys, stabs him, and then he looks and he tilts his head like a little kid. Like he's looking at it like he'd been curious. And I was like, oh my God, what, you know. What? He's almost like studying like a bug, like like studying like a piece of art or, yeah, that little head, head tilt tells you so much about him uh, without saying anything. Like it's just, words would be redundant. Uh, and it's scary because he, he he's not ashamed of what he's done. Mm-hmm. He's interested. Like, oh, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> In the very first one, he's very into arts and crafts. He <laughs> he steals yeah. that the the tombstone and puts it in there and recreates yes. this little tableau. Yeah, he he's got great time management skills. When you're not <laughs> looking, he's really putting things together. It because that but but being in the in in the mental institution, all those arts and crafts did pay off. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but in that first one, especially, he has a dark sense of humor. Yes. Like he's setting bodies up to fall down. He wants to see you scared. He's fucking with you. Yes. When he puts that sheet over and comes in and talks to Linda, he doesn't need to do that. He wants to do it because he thinks it's funny. Uh, and after that, like in Halloween 2, then he becomes a Terminator, right? He's yeah. he's just stoically. It's a different actor playing him. It's Dick Warlock. And he's just like walking through glass doors. And he's still this unrelenting like shark. Yeah. But he he's missing that 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 boyish mirth mm-hmm. that he had in the first one and i felt like in the 2018 one they do bring that back a little bit he's doing more arts and crafts again <laughs> and right. it's it's just not a, it's not enough to kill you you want to see someone be scared you want to play with your food yeah mm-hmm. uh, he's got he's look it's a it's a lot of work killing people if you don't enjoy it why do it yeah <laughs> it doesn't bring you joy there's other things <laughs> he could do all right so <laughs> Now, I know on your website, I saw that you would love to write a sequel to Halloween 3. We know John Carpenter, correct me if I'm wrong, Deborah Hill and John Carpenter produced Halloween 3. John mm-hmm. Carpenter didn't direct it. I can't remember if he wrote it or co-wrote it. He did not write it. There was a couple different writers in there. I want to say Richard Matheson from I Am Legend was what the, the original writer. Okay. And they, they didn't go with his take, but he was involved. Um it's Tom, Tommy, um, I think it's Tommy Lee something. I forget the director's name, I'm sorry. But he, the director of Halloween 3 is the gentleman who made the mask in the first one. It's part okay. of the, he's part of the John Carpenter's crew. Um, so he designed that Halloween mask. I think if there is one, if I could change one thing about Halloween 3, I'd tell you where they went wrong with Halloween mm-hmm. 3. If they had made one slight change, that movie would be canon and it would be celebrated and it would have been a hit. Mm-hmm. If, the, if it didn't take place in a separate universe, so in Halloween 3, they're yes. watching the Halloween movie on screen. 
had they not done that and instead had that factory making the Halloween mask, yes, mm -hmm. in addition to the other ones, it would have been a huge hit. Because in the Halloween universe, in that very first Halloween, that's just a mask that a company sells that Michael Myers yeah. pulls off the shelf. Yes. Obsessively, that's a popular mask that people want to wear. Mm -hmm. Where did it come from? What is it? Yeah. Oh, so yeah. show us the factory making that mask and tie it in. Oh my God. That's all that little tweak, I think, would help would have helped tremendously. But when you say this is not of the same world and Halloween is just a movie here, I think that's the same mistake that um Blair Witch 2 made. Mm -hmm. The second Blair Witch was like, oh, Blair Witch was just a movie. This mm -hmm. is the real world. It's like, yeah. well, none of it's the real world. Come on. Mm -hmm. We were invested in that first world. We were invested in Haddonfield. Just show me another Halloween in that world. And maybe you see a TV interview with Jamie Lee Curtis being like, yeah, I can't believe I survived all that. Yeah. Or it's been year, years since the Myers murder. He was burned up. I, so I think there's an opportunity to extend that story world from Halloween 3. Uh, I hate that that universe has gone untouched. Mm -hmm. I want to know what happened when he makes those phone calls because that ending yes. is fantastic. Uh, yes. e even though it's somewhat similar to other endings, they, they did rip off a lot in that Halloween 3. There is a whole sequence where they just like re replace her with a robot. Yeah. Spoiler, spoilers for a 40 year old movie. Yeah. But why would they even do that if they thought they won? And then it, it begs questions like, if they have killer robots, why are they even doing the microchip, Stonehenge, yeah. mass commercial mm -hmm. plot that has so many points of failure? <laughs> <laughs> but I think you could pick up 40 years later, you've got crazy Tom Atkins in a nut house, mm -hmm. and maybe he actually did stop the plan. Maybe yeah. all the TV stations did turn it off. Yeah. And now they're going to try again. But mm -hmm. this time, because in the 80s, it was computers, and computers are going to kill us. Yeah. Right? Computers are going to be the end of us. Yeah. So what is it now? Apps. Yeah. You do like the Silver Shamrock app. So now you don't have to worry about time zones or TV commercials yeah. or these convoluted schemes. Uh, and they could be trying again. And then you have Tom Atkins. You make it a requel. You know, someone's going to stop it. They talk to Tom Atkins. The killer robots finally get Tom Atkins. Yeah. And then um, how do we stop technology from killing us all? Mm. What I love, love, love about Halloween 3 is that it is so all over the map. Mm -hmm. In terms of tonality, of, of plot motivation, mm -hmm. and it's so of the time that I think you just need to be like, what is technology today? Because really what they're saying is TV is evil. Commercialism is evil. Don't watch TV. It's going to rot your brain. A kid's brain literally rots. Yes. And snakes and bugs pop yeah. out. And it's horrific. And it's in the middle of this like campy kind of TV movie of the week story. Yes. So what is it today that we're terrified of? What are the kids today? Um, what's the evil today? It's apps. It's the phone. Tell a story of that world. And the Silver Shamrock Company could have just morphed into something else, right? Mm -hmm. I think you call it Season of the Warlock. Yeah. Because, mm -hmm. if you know, if you have a male witch, that's a warlock. Yeah, uh, and uh, honestly enough, I uh, funnily enough, I was at a Halloween event a couple years ago, and I met the producer of Halloween, uh, Alik Makad. His father was the Mustafa Akad was the original producer. Yes, and uh, had the rights. So I, I met Alik, his son, and I, I briefly talked to him. I'm like, I, I, I make comic books. I love the Halloween thing, uh -huh. and I think the Halloween three universe is gone. It's just been 
underutilized. I yeah. think there, there's an audience for that. Yes. And he, they had had a rough time with the Halloween license in the past of not being paid. So they had some bad experiences um, with the Halloween world. And I actually have some of the original art from those, those Halloween comic books. Mm-hmm. But I pitched him on the uh, Halloween 3 like, requel. And yeah. he said, you know, send me a pitch and I'll look at it. We, You know, it's possible. Yeah. But I think uh, I don't have personally have the funds to license that myself. Oh, yeah. And I don't know that that would be an appropriate thing to do through Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. Kickstarter is more about personal vision. And I think anytime you involve other entities and companies, it becomes something else. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not crazy when I see publishers use Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Um to get things funded because then I'm competing with the publisher and yeah, that's why I'm on Kickstarter because I don't want to compete with the publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think there's a way to do it. And I think I want to do it while Tom Atkins is still alive. Mm, yes. Cause I think that's critical to get his involvement because he is such a, his personality looms so large in that Halloween three. Yes. And he, he's such a, his character, he's like an alcoholic doctor who takes it upon himself to be a detective who's yes. then a father figure to a girl who's looking for her missing father, but mm-hmm. then just decides to sleep with her a bunch. Yeah, yeah. In a really graphic, bizarre sex scene in a hotel. Um, so yeah, I think uh, he, he, he is Halloween great. That mm-hmm. movie is not the same thing without him. If you would cast like a really handsome, dashing, leading man, oh, yeah. it wouldn't have the staying power of what the hell is going on here? Yeah. Why this guy? Why yeah. are women throwing themselves at this guy? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everywhere he goes, women are like, are you going to call me? <laughs> I'm like, him? <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> but it's also got a great soundtrack and a great mood. Yes. And that town of California, all of it, it just looks beautiful. Dean Cundy, the photographer on there, it looks great. The soundtrack is great. Uh, but tonally, it's all over the map. And story-wise, it's, it's riddled with plot holes. To the mm-hmm. point where you're like, I don't even care that there's no time zones in the country. Yeah. I don't, yes. I don't care. I don't care that the factory is still making masks the night they're about to kill a third of the world population. As if anyone's going to want to buy their mask the next day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think if you're killing half the world, your uh, your stock is going to plummet. <laughs> but just I the have... grandiose villainry of it all. I just, I just love it. Oh, yes. Because so my only complaint is, if I could go back in time, I would tie it into that world more. Yes. Oh, yeah. I would, I would tie it into the first two movies. Yeah. And I have to say, it's it's one of my favorite sequels because it was so different. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Because if I because I, for some weird reason, like you said, it's all over the place. You know, it, it's it's not a horror movie. It, it's a horror movie, but then it's like. Wait a minute. Well, why why are we having computers? Well, why does this look like Stonehenge? Why why does this, you know? And you know, and, and wait, we have a killer robot. You know, <laughs> yeah, you have killer androids. Just stick with that. Yeah. You want to kill the world? Send out killer androids. Why are you doing this bug thing? <laughs> but yeah, you, I, you would have to be on cocaine to write that story. <laughs> you would like that's just a like in the eighties. People loved cocaine. Yeah. Um, and I just feel like that that is a movie they don't make sequels like that anymore. Oh yeah. Which is why I think you could do it as a graphic novel because there's a lot less financial writing on it. You don't have to have it be elevated horror if you do it as a graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Tommy Lee Wallace, that's the that's the director of Halloween Three. Ah, okay. And he's the he's also the creator of the Halloween mask. Ah, all right. Of the white mask. All right. 
Um, and I'm not calling Tommy Lee Edwards a cokehead, but I'm well, saying somebody involved in that script production did drugs. Yeah, that's because that's all. Yeah, and that's okay. Yeah, it's all right. Um, what was your favorite convention moment, either as a fan or as a creator? Whether it was a comic book convention or even a horror convention. Okay, I'm gonna I I, I have an anecdote, and it, it's gonna make me look like an idiot. But it was really, really important that I had this experience. I would say it's 20 years ago, and I was doing the Less Than Hero miniseries, which is about like sort of a scuzz rock superhero in San Francisco at that time, who was sort of foul mouthed and full of himself and egotistical. And it was like there's a lot of potty humor in the book. Mm -hmm. Like it was like a mix of lowbrow, highbrow. And I would do the pitch. I was at a convention. I would pitch everybody who walked by. And I forget what, it, what my pitch was exactly, but I'm trying to sell something that I don't think is going to appeal to everybody. Mm -hmm. And a, a a woman was coming down the hall, the, the 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 aisle with two of her kids, and she was, I remember she was Indian and she was dressed really well, like she was clearly in a different tax bracket than I was, and she just looked beautiful. And I was like, I can't give her the pitch for my dumb book. Mm -hmm. Like this is just going to offend her. Yeah. I don't want to embarrass yeah. her in front of her kids. I'm just going to let her walk by without yeah. giving her the pitch. I'm going to do her that dignity. Mm -hmm. So she stopped at my table and she's like, oh, when does issue four come out? And, she, and then she started telling me about my book. And she had been reading my book and she knew my book. Wow. Yeah, she bought it at a bookstore. And I just remember thinking like, I am such an idiot that I was editorializing who I thought would like my book. Mm -hmm. I made a value judgment like, oh, she's, she wouldn't like this. No, yeah. she did. She knew it. Uh, and that was a really valuable lesson for me to stop at it. My, my audience is not going to look like me. Yeah. My audience is going to be everybody. So I'll pitch everybody. And then you decide if it's for you or not. Yes. That was really important. That was really like, I was like, I'm such an idiot. Why did I think that? Why did I make that assumption? So that was 20 years ago. So since then, I just tell everyone about the book and like, Hey, if you like it, awesome. If not, maybe you like the next one or yeah. maybe, you know, maybe, maybe you like saga, go buy saga. Saga's great. Yeah. You know, if you read Hellboy, Hellboy's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't offend me if someone doesn't like my book because mm -hmm. that's, I have a very specific voice. And if you're not looking for that voice this week, that's okay. Yeah. You know, my buddy Jeff Parker does great books. Mm -hmm. Buy one of his. So once I realized I had my own voice and perspective, I stopped being competitive and I stopped editorializing. And if you like it, awesome. If not, it doesn't hurt my feelings. You like what you like. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to say also too, but it's, it's kind of a nice surprise that she came up to you. Yeah. You never know who's reading your work. Don't assume. We all like different things. And it might surprise you what I like. Probably not, but. Yeah. You never know. All right. Two more questions. Hit me. Have you and your family been to Hawaii? I, I don't have kids, but I do have a wife. Mm -hmm. And my wife and I were in Oahu, I want to yeah. say, in like around 2010. Mm -hmm. 2011 and that's we went on the vacation and we had the talk are we going to get married is that something we want to do um, we were coming up on two years and i think at that point you should stop wasting someone's time two years is a, is a big chunk of time you get to know somebody but i also don't believe you should jump out of a bush with an engagement ring yeah. this is the bi the biggest decision of your life is whether or not you're going to get married and it deserves some consideration so we went on this trip and we spent the whole time talking what would our lives look like if we were married do you want kids? Do I want kids? 
How are we going to handle finances? Are we ready to make that commitment? Are we the right people for that commitment? And it's a long discussion. And you know, spoiler alert, we we got married. I came back. I said, okay, we on the on, in Oahu, we went through all the stages, what our lives could be look look like. I'm like, all right, give me the measurements of, of your of your ring finger at the end. I ordered a ring, and then a couple months later, we were in San, back in San Francisco, and we had a lunch date. She took a break at lunch. I took a break at lunch. We went to the park. I gave her the ring. She said, "Cool, now we're engaged." Nice. But we did all the deliberating, all of the um, yeah, all the uh, discussions, the the, the deliberations were done in Oahu. And mm -hmm. then I want to say, like around 2001, I was on the Big Island. Yes. With um, I had my girlfriend at that time was Hawaiian and went back to Hawaii. I, I met her family. Oh, they did funny. not love me. Um. <laughs> I was a bit more unpolished uh, okay. in 2021. As rough as I am now, I was a, I was a little bit more, um, you know, mm -hmm. a, a rough gem. Yes. <laughs> but it's beautiful, a beautiful place. But also, I am very, very pale. Mm -hmm. I can get a sunburn from the moon. So uh, I'm not the type of person who's going to lay out on a beach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I love getting up early and going for a swim and then going for a swim at night. Mm -hmm. The mid the midday, I'm, you know, yeah. covered head to toe under an umbrella, wearing a burqa, whatever I can do to stave off the sun. <laughs> All right. Um, last question. Any closing words to our listeners? If you've made it this far, thank you so much for your time and energy. You're obviously a diehard comics fan, as uh, Jason and I are as well. So thank you for listening and giving me your ear. And I hope you check out Past Tense. And it would make a great gift for someone you don't like. <laughs> All right. And thank you, Jason, for your time and energy and reading the book and having such thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it. No, I'm glad I, we did this. Yes, I'm glad. Thank you. Jason, thank you very much. Thank you. Know, just thank you for your time. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to interview you. Thank you very much. Of course. I wish you all the success with past tense. If you are a new comic book reader or a lifelong comic book reader, please check out past tense. It is an original graphic novel from Dark Horse Comics coming out on June 21st. I've I've, as I've mentioned, I love this story because it's a great sci-fi crime story that unfolds very naturally. And it's like, a, it's a great story. It really is. That know? means so much to hear that. That really warms my heart. Thank you. And I appreciate that so much. And I love the character of Ashley. She's very good. You know, she, it's, she's that everyday person. You know, we're just, we go to work. We have, you know, we're college, we're college graduates with, most of us are college graduates with useless, you know, um, degrees, but we have a job, we get a job and, you know, we just survive through the day basically, you know, and we That's have, and so it's very good. And Jason, I, I'm, I'm being very serious to the listeners, you know, um, listeners, you know, if you guys get a chance, not only pick up a copy for yourself, but, you know, pick up a copy who you think um, your comic book friend who loves sci-fi and crime and crime stories, give them a copy of this book. It's very good. And it'll make well, a nice you know, you, drift. What would also help is if you tell your local retailer that you, if you order a copy from your retailer, they're likely to order a copy for you and then one for the shelf because they might not, not even know it exists because, gotcha. you know, I'm sure Marvel's got an event this summer. DC probably has super duper darkest final crisis coming out. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're competing with these. So if you tell your retailer that you're interested in it, this book, they will buy a copy for the shop as well and turn it on to someone else. So you're almost buying two copies, at least, if you tell it from a retailer. 
That's a very good point. Thank you, Jason. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I want to thank Drew, the Coast of Commerce for Fun and Profit, for putting this episode together. Drew, thank you very much for all your hard work behind the scenes. And if you are a new listener, please check out new episodes of Comics for Fun and Profit that comes out every Saturday. And I want to thank you, the listeners. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode. Until next time, guys. Aloha. This episode of Comics for Fun and Profit is brought to you by Threadless. More importantly, the Comics Fun Profit shop on Threadless at comicsfunprofit.threadless.com where you can find, oh, about half a dozen different designs, plenty of comics for fun and profit themed merch. If you just want a t-shirt, you're good. And if you want sweatshirts or other swaggy items, and you can get anything phone cases, shower curtains. It runs the gamut. Skateboards, I think. <laughs> so check that out. Uh, we've already sold several. We're excited about the fact that the folks that want to support us in this way are able to and uh, wear our merch out into the, in the real world. That's pretty exciting stuff. So uh, yeah, get your comics for fun and profit, branded items at comicsfunprofit.threadless.com.